Welcome to the AAK podcast brought to you by All About Kids, the leading provider of children's therapeutic and educational services in New York. This podcast will dive deep into discussions on children's developmental needs and the stories of parents and other adults who have dealt with developmental disorders. Each conversation on this show is an extension of our mission to create a world where all children have access to intervention, allowing them to live a full and rich life without restriction, where parents have access to the information and training they need to support their child's therapy and special education needs, and where disabilities, therapy, and special education can be openly discussed without stigma. This time, I sit down with Jerry Rothwell, a documentary filmmaker who has made award-winning films like Town of Runners, How to Change the World, Heavy Load, and most recently, The Reason I Jump. The Reason I Jump is based on the best-selling book written by Naoki Higashida, a non-speaking autistic Japanese boy. The film weaves Naoki's writings around stories of non-speaking autistic people across the globe, immersing the audience in their unique sensory worlds full of intensity, richness, beauty, and sometimes shadows and terror. As I watched the film, I was blown away by the insights into the world of the non-speaking autistic people on screen. The part about civil rights was especially moving. In this episode, Jerry and I get into the challenges of making a film centered around non-speaking people the unique way the audio was recorded, the film's display of nature and other sensory environments, Jerry's journey as a filmmaker, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Jerry Rothwell. All right, so Jerry Rothwell, thank you for joining me today on the All About Kids podcast. Hi, Zach. Good to be here. I thought a good place to start and this is actually perfect because I see you have heavy load in the background, the artwork from one of your previous documentaries. I wanted to start with sort of an overall approach to some of the documentaries you've made, like How to Change the World, which is on the founders of Greenpeace. You have Town of Runners, which is about two Ethiopian girls in a village trying to make it as athletes. You have Heavy Load, which is a group of a uh, group of people with disabilities who form a punk band. And then, of course, The Reason I Jump, which we'll get into today, which follows a group of non-speaking people with autism as they navigate the world. And for you, you seem to gravitate towards telling the stories of the people who may be forgotten about or less thought about or aren't able to speak for themselves. And what draws you to telling those type of stories? Because there's, there's billions of stories you could literally tell with a camera. What draws you and has drawn you to those types of stories in particular? It's sort of a huge range, I, I guess, of subject matter of like, um, you know, from wine fraud to Greenpeace to punk bands to non-speaking autism. I guess for me, for me, like a documentary is always sort of a, a search, you know, it's a search process that you're, uh, you know, you want, it's got to be something that you're genuinely interested in finding out about it and you find out about it during the shooting and making process. And, and it's what you find out about it that essentially you kind of bring to an audience. I don't kind of believe in docs where you script them in advance and, and then all you're doing is kind of um, making the thing that you've written. And I guess those subject matters often like when I finished a film whatever the last film was about I kind of veer to something very dissimilar to it you know so when I finished the the film about the founders of Greenpeace the next film was about a wine fraudster which is like as far away 
as you could get really from the anti-whaling campaigns of the 1970s. And I think that was just like, you know, so this idea was knocking around. Someone brought brought this idea, and and it was like, oh yeah, okay, I, I really like. I can I can see that. I think I think I need to sort of see the shape of a film to take it on. Let's have a sense of how it, you know, what the where the turning points are, how it's how it might unfold, but be willing to sort of change depending on where we, what we find. A good documentary approach. A, a good documentarian it seems like would follow some sort of similar approach to, to scientific approach or scientific method. Because if you, if you start an experiment and you're trying to get the uh, predetermined outcome, then you might find yourself altering as results or altering the way that things pan out in the individual experiments to fit the overall narrative that you want to tell. And so making a documentary it, it, a good documentary is kind of like that. It sounds like where you you have a story in mind that you're wanting to tell, but you're open to changing based on what you see or based on the evidence and based on how things pan out when you're filming. Yeah, I mean, it's good to start with a question rather than a message. You know that that you kind of there's something about a story which is why it kind of grabs you. It's the complex bit of it that you want to uh, unfold and uncover. I think that's, that's for me, what's really important. What was the question that you had in your mind for the reason I jumped before you started filming, before you maybe even made plans for the documentary? What was the question that popped into your head that you felt a desire to answer or, or find, find some sort of greater meaning I mean, its starting point is this book by this 12-year-old Japanese boy um, in a Tokyo suburb who's, I guess, just at that age where he's starting to realize that perhaps, you know, we all all have this 12 years old, you know, that we're not the the person that everyone else thinks we are, you know, we're ourselves. And, uh, and in his case, it's, it's kind of realizing that the world thinks of him as autistic and what that means. And so he, you know, the book in a way is him him asking lots of questions about that, you know, uh, and trying to ex- anticipate the questions others ask. So one of them is, why do I jump? And that's why the book's called The Reason I Jump. For me, it was a like what was striking about the book was that it conveyed this really sensory world, this very sensory experience in which um, images and sounds and vibrant colors and details and patterns and oscillations were things that Naoki described as as kind of a world that he became immersed in to to the exclusion of the of the context around it. And I kind of wondered how true that was for for other non-speaking autistic people. You know, I wanted to make the film kind of global so that we went to a number of different people around the world. Um, and also, I guess for me, there was an interesting question about how could you make something that's like a cinematic equivalent of the book? So it's not really an adaptation because the book is like a 58 questions and answers. It's not got no plot, no character. But how could you make something that did the same job as the book does, which is take you into a very different experience of reality? One of the questions or, or yeah, one of the questions that was a narrated passage in the movie because like you said, it's based on the book written by Naoki, but he doesn't actually appear on film. 
but he does have narrated passages of what he wrote in the book, The Reason I Jump. One of those passages in the beginning said, can you imagine how your life would be if you couldn't say what you wanted? And that was a common theme for me throughout the film is that, that I'm watching these, this group of people that are non-speaking autistic and they obviously have similar desires and wants and needs to the rest of us. And they're getting this, this input from the rest of the world. And there's this gap between those desires and needs and what they're able to communicate in neurotypical terms. And the world is built in a neurotypical fashion. So if you you want to buy a sandwich or you want to say that you love this work of art or you want to create a, you, you want to create almost anything. If it's not in neurotypical terms, it, it can be hard for people to understand. And it, it was, it's still hard for me to understand because I, I am, I don't have autism. I'm able to speak. And that was a common theme for me is how vividly and how deeply this group of people feels things. And I can see a lot of parts of myself, similar desires, uh, similar things that I want to do in this film. Yeah. I mean, I think there's lots for everyone to identify in it. I mean, that's one of the, for me, one of the learning experiences of the film was to think a bit about how I kind of process reality and, and how, how actually we all maybe do it with different kind of biases and different in a slightly different ways and how interesting that is in terms of the way we communicate with each other. But I guess that thing about, about not being able to say what you're thinking, you know, you see a lot of frustration in the young people in the film. I think sort of, there's a kind of, a, you know, a real desire to, to not to be spoken for or not to have the things that you want kind of just overridden because you, you can't speak. And we live in a very verbal world, I think, where if you don't speak, people think that you're stupid and you don't think. I mean, we really shouldn't think that given, you know, someone like Stephen Hawking kind of, and you had to use a, a device to speak in his later life and clearly was someone who could think some pretty sophisticated thoughts. So it's not, it's kind of, I think we often, the neurotypically, we often judge people just by their exterior and by what they say. The film did, me, did make me realize how much we have uh, an attachment to speaking and speaking as a symbol of intelligence or competence, because there are many people who are competent at certain skills that may not be able to speak in a, you know, this in, intoxicating or vivid manner and, and clear, cogent manner in, in the way that we are used to it. And there, there are people also that don't have great skills, but are able to speak their way into making you believe that they do. And so it's like we take this small slice of a person's life, which is the, the verbal communication, and we kind of extrapolate that to the broader sense of, if, is this you know, a competent human being in general? Or is this a smart human being in general? Yeah, and I think I think kind of historically for non-speaking autistics, they've been assumed to be incompetent. You know, there's been a and there's this thing in that world now of saying you need know, presume competence, presume that someone can understand what you're saying. That sort of thing of people kind of talking in front of people, making assumptions about about you know 
you know, there's that great bit in the in in the Aki's book that's in the film where he says, you know, people say, oh, yeah, he just likes to be on his own, um, and but actually, I'm kind of desperate to be with other people, but my interactions with other people so often go wrong that it's kind of easier to stay to the side. Are there any interesting challenges or surprises that you had as a filmmaker that came up when you're creating a documentary around people who are non-speaking anything that you weren't expecting or or the approach to the film where you had to take a certain approach this time as uh, opposed to if you had five subjects that were able to speak I mean, I think it, like the first challenge was that Naoki didn't want to be in the film. Uh, you know, he was really happy for the project to go ahead. But I think that idea that the film might be about this young Japanese boy finding his voice and becoming a writer, you know, that kind of went out the window. But actually, that sent it in a more interesting direction, I think. And in a way, it's a real gift to a filmmaker. I learned so much about filmmaking doing this film because I had to be less reliant on plot or on words or on explanations you know it was very much a kind of show don't tell approach the film sort of tries to sit you alongside the characters who you meet uh the people who you meet and to maybe experience the environments they're in in a, in a kind of sensory way rather than just as a sort of background but it's also not i, I don't think the film ca- i don't think film can get you into someone else's head completely you know it's not a simulation it's not like i, I hope people don't come out going oh right that's how it is to be autistic apart from anything else you know autistic experience is this huge range of of different experiences and, and you can even see that in the five people in the film just huge differences between them but yeah it was a it, it was an exciting challenge and i think i kind of learned a lot about filmmaking about the use of sound and and association things you often don't let yourself do in a film like sometimes the associative edit you know the edit of something which is just motivated by its associative link to something else which is wrong for another film because you don't, you're not following that plot line you know you're not moving it on in that way was absolutely right for this film and it needed a different kind of shape yeah i i imagine that that presents a lot of difficulties when so much of the film is centered around the sensory approach and the sensory experience of people who are non-speaking autistic and these five people specifically. And one part of the film that stands out in particular is the rain scene when Naoki is describing how he has to go through this whole process in his head to identify that it's raining that that he he hears certain things and he sees certain things and to where a neurotypical person you your brain just kind of automatically puts those things together and groups them and and it it's rain he has to sort of hand pick each thing that's going on and make sense of it in real time there's like this whole extra layer that goes on in his head that is dedicated with energy, like it takes energy, it seems like to do this all day. And for something as simple as rain, that scene where it starts out soft and then it gradually picks up. And then it seems like the sound changes to where it's super harsh and almost sounds like, like tacks on the table in a sense. What, what was kind of your approach to creating scenes like that to people that are not used to handpicking sensory experience in real time and kind of showing what it's like for Naoki and the, and the other five people in the film. 
we decided early on to to make the film in 360 degree sound and atmos sound mix which you know mm. enables you to place a sound in 128 different places in a cinema yeah. so it's kind of like this very immersive experience and i think probably that's what most of all gives the film an immersive feel for that sequence uh, i worked with um <coughs> sound designer nick ryan who's who's himself synesthetic as a lot of non-speaking autistics are and has also done a lot of artwork around the sort of neuroscience of hearing and listening and um for that sequence, you know, Naoki says this thing about flipping through when he hears rain. He describes a moment of hearing rain and needing to flip through all of his memories of rain in order to establish and link the sound of rain to the idea that it's raining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which yeah. is like for a neurotypical person is a really difficult idea to get your head around. And for that sequence, we happen to have, have shot one of the characters on the balcony in, in a high rise in India when the storm is rolling in. And Nick kind of designed it you know we used the 360 sound of that rain and, and also whenever we were on the shoot and it rained we just kind of recorded as much possible rain as possible so that sequence first of all includes the 360 from that moment but also mm-hmm. the resonances of other rain and then nick kind of layered on top of that sounds that weren't rain but sound like rain you know the crinkling of paper or, or the dropping of drawing pins on a table or mm-hmm. And I think the effect of that on an audience is to be watching something and what you're hearing is not quite what you're seeing, but is kind of triggering associations. And so maybe it puts people into a, a place where they're sort of seeing something, not just maybe as the neurotypical way we'd filter it, you know, oh, sound of rain, that's rain. Those two things go together, but instead links mm-hmm. it to the memories of other things and other moments. Yeah, for, for me, when I was watching it, I. I heard the rain and then when it started to get stronger, I got the sense that the sound of the rain is the most overwhelming experience for me at the moment. And in my own head, I, you know, I was thinking if this is, if this is anything like what the characters go through, not the characters, the people that go through in the movie, in the film, that there's like this way of senses capturing you and they become overwhelming in the moment. And I can only imagine, you know, being in a rainstorm for an hour straight and being fixated on a, a certain aspect is the sound or the sight. And I feel like that scene gave me at least a, a small peek into how senses can be beautiful and also disturbing or overwhelming at the same time, depending on where you're at. Yeah, exactly. I think that that that's the sort of intensity that Naki describes, you know, this thing where at times it's phenomenally, uh, you, know, you know, he can see if the, the phenomenal beauty or the pattern of something. Uh, and at times it's so overwhelming that it's hard to listen to some people that aren't in the film. But one, one of the things that he found really hard was air dryers in toilets you know that that sudden sound where there's this intense from and and it would be incredibly sort of disturbing frightening anxious making for him partly i think because it was unexpected like you didn't know when someone was kind of if you're in a a public public toilet and a washroom and uh someone kind of triggered the air dryer the hand dryer uh you had no kind of control over when that that incredibly disruptive sound would happen so yeah i think it's it's both enormously beautiful and and potentially enormously anxiety making 
So how did the stories of these five people come together for the movie? Where, where did you meet them? How did you link up and how, how did uh, that connection happen to where they decided that they wanted to appear in the film? Yeah, I mean, mostly we kind of found people through either sort of word of mouth contacts or sometimes through the internet. Uh, and then kind of we'd, you know, for, so for example, Amrit, the artist in India, mm-hmm. you know, she started painting at the age of, I think, or started drawing at the age of four. She's nonverbal and drawing was a way for her to describe her day to her mum, you know, and this is, this is what's happened to me today. And that's now turned, she's now 22 and it's turned into this incredibly sort of productive artwork, uh, sort of huge canvases, um, very vibrant colours, details of people's faces and uh, of, of kind of the things she sees on the street. So that felt like a really good place to start the film because it takes you into literally into another way of seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's what you want to do at the beginning of the film is to kind of just shift people to the side of where they're usually at and think, think in a different way. I suppose that one of the decisions that we only really came to in the edit was were we going to intercut all these people and, uh, or were we going to have sections of the film where you spend a lot of time with them and then you move on and maybe what you've learned from the last person you take on to the next person. And we sort of decided to do the latter, to do it in, in kind of sections. Um, so the next person you visit is Joss and the sequence with Joss, he's a young adolescent boy going through, I think, a period of a lot of intense sort of over, over sensory stimulation, finding life quite difficult. And his sequence is a lot about sort of time and memory and, and the kind of ways that now he describes his memory as, as you know, unlike maybe the more linear neurotypical memory is one that's arranged like a pool of dots and at any moment a dot can rise to the surface and kind of capture him. And then I wanted to to, to give the film a more sort of political advocacy turn. And, and so I found Ben and Emma in, in the States who are part, who both write in the way Nauki writes using a letterboard or an iPad, but also um, a part of a sort of civil rights movement for autistic people. And then finally, the film ends in Sierra Leone. And I was already shooting in Sierra Leone on another film and was just interested in how autism played out in an African context. And that's how we found Mary and Justin. You thought it would be more powerful to have each story told one after the other rather than kind of intertwine and cut back and forth. Yeah, because I think I think the film has a, a sort of shape and a forward motion, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have a plot, you know. So so you're not necessarily leaving people on sort of cliffhangers yeah. for, to which you can return. Yeah. You can't get that kind of tension in it. The mm-hmm. tension in the film is about this gradual unfolding of you realizing how these different people yeah. are experiencing the world. Yeah. And so that that I think required you to spend time with them with with each of them. Yeah, I've, I've seen a film. I don't know if you've seen the documentary "Camera Person" by um, Kirsten Johnson, but I um, yeah, but that, that's structured. I, that, that's structured in that episodic way, and I just thought it, it kind of works beautifully. And it's, a, it's a, I guess it's quite an unconventional way of structuring a, a film, especially a doc. But yeah, I th- it, it felt like the right way to go. We spoke about the 360 sound, which is incredible. I wanted to get into the visual approach a little bit for how you shot the film. And one of uh, another uh, passage in the film that Naoki writes is he talks about the whole image floating into focus and, and there are multiple times throughout the 
the film where you are watching, you know, eggs frying or rain or grass, things in nature, to get that feeling of things coming in and out of focus and seeing the details first and then the kind of the whole expanding onto the whole picture. What was your approach visually for the film? How, how did you translate? How did you get from the, the camera to making that effect possible on screen? So, yeah, I mean, I worked with a young DOP, Ruben Wooden Deschamps, and he, he wasn't a, typically a documentary DOP, although he'd done some docs, but more he made music videos, kind of short dramas, experimental work. And I kind of wanted an approach to it that was different maybe from, from, from the kind of being on auto for, for documentaries. And I suppose we took kind of hints from Naoki's writing and from the writing of other non-speaking autistics. Uh, you know, Naoki, as I said, said this thing about detail and the immersion in detail. And there's this layer in the film, which is, which is about, you know, using macro close-ups just in the environments that we find people, not kind of superimposing special effects on it, but just what, what we would find in, in these places. And it's a bit like that game you used to get in like kids' magazines where it's like you'd see a hyper close-up or something and it would say kind of, what is this? And then on the next page, you know, it'd be revealed that it's a matchbox or it's a, it's a radiator or whatever. So that, I think there's the, the, so there was an element of that, that kind of hyper-detail layer. There's then quite a kind of sat-back sat observational layer where we're just hanging out with people in their everyday lives and getting to know them, I suppose, through that. And maybe they're doing something, maybe they're making a painting, maybe they're training for an ice hockey match or um, maybe they're going to the beach. And that was very much about trying to create an intimacy. Uh, you know, we went with a really small crew, just me, a DOP, a sound recordist, and, and then there'd be a camera assistant who was often kind of not near the action. And just spending time with people, really, um, to, to, to get those moments. And, and I guess the film is made up of all these little small moments. And then there's a third layer in the film, which is, I think, there because we didn't want the people in the film, the contributors who you visit to be there to feel like they're sort of case studies of the book or they're only there to illustrate things that are in the book so we felt that you needed something visual that was a place where a lot of the book could happen and we we wanted people to think about Naoki and the writer of the book in those moments so we found this young non-speaking Japanese boy in in the UK Jim Fujiwara and essentially shot him on a kind of journey through a set of landscapes and and you could interpret that the journey's not really interpreted in the film it could be a journey from the sea to the city from from night to day from day to night or evening to night or from or home but it's basically a, a kind of it's also a journey of self-discovery maybe and that we just, we decided to shoot in a very kind of kinetic way. So unlike the more sort of static documentary stuff, we used a, a stabilization and kind of followed Jim through these environments and kind of just really, you know, were with him as he was observing these new places. Yeah, there were there were a bunch of beautiful nature and, and landscape shots in the film, and and I I felt I felt a little bit of what is talked about in the film about nature where, it, you know, if you can't speak and, and you can't communicate with other people in a neurotypical way, nature is not only beautiful to you, but it's also 
something that is there for you, like, like an embrace. Naoki talks about it, like when nothing else is there for him in the world, nature is always there for me and I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of sit, feel it with the the sentence senses. And I I feel like those type of shots really gave me the feeling of there's nothing else but nature here. It's not just the beauty aspect. It, It made me think about the you know, like really what, like how beautiful nature can be when nothing else is around. Yeah. And a, a kind of a place, I think Nauki describes nature as a, it's a, for him, it's a place where there are no expectations of him. There's no kind of a human demands, requirements to be a certain way, communicate a certain way. The book actually ends with this story, uh, which I didn't include in the film, but I think it was sort of the the genesis of that idea of the young lad going through these landscapes. And in the story, Naki writes about a boy called Shun who's knocked over by a car and and dies, um, but doesn't realise that he's dead. And then kind of travels, first of all, to look at his... He sees his grieving parents through the window and doesn't understand why they're so upset. And gradually he realizes he must have died. And he starts then to travel the world as a sort of spirit. And um, I think in some ways that story is about, you know, actually it's not about sort of death. It's about the freedom of not having, of being liberated from the body. You know, I think for many autistic people, or at least for, for, for Nauki in the book, you know, he talks about feeling that his body is this faulty robot that never does what he wants it to do. And that story is, is of like what might life be like if you were just free of the body. And, and in a way, maybe that's a bit carried in, in this kid going through the landscapes. That there's a, he's almost like this kind of spirit world sort of envoy that David Mitchell, the translator, talks about in the film. Yeah, that, that, that's something, something that I also took away from the film that, that I didn't realize before there's such a a mechanical aspect to autism where it's not the the intelligence it's not it's not the the competence in many cases it's the like there's literally it seems like this mechanical glitch and processing thing going on in the body where you are you have the signal within you 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 have the thing you want to say you have the movement you want to do, you have the the emotion you want to express. And then there's this thing going on in your nervous system or in your brain that I don't completely understand, but we're doing a lot of work to, to figure this out is, is what is that mechanism that is not working the way that it's supposed to or not working the way it would in a, a neurotypical person. And, and that in the film was something that I really strongly got is, is the, the the mechanical aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes when you're with Joss in the film, you just feel that discomfort, you know, his discomfort in his own body or feeling. I can't remember which writer, one of the non-speaking writers, talks about being able to kind of feel like his skull as a sort of presence, you know, and that, yeah. that thing of feeling, yeah, feel, you know, and maybe the neurotypical brain kind of, you know, in, in, in the way it orientates us in space and, and makes us think of ourselves as a, as a coherent sort of self that's acting in the world filters out a lot of, a lot of that stuff. But now he certainly kind of writes about it and make, and it just make it, it does make you think about what you, you know, how on earth do we manage to exist in the world yeah. in the way that we do? It's something I wanted to ask you, has anyone 
in the the psychedelic community reached out to you about the film because I've watched a few psychedelic documentaries that I've listened to a bunch of podcasts on psychedelics and, and people do use similar language to describe a lot of the things that Naoki writes where there's this kind of this, this blasting of the senses when you're, you know, on a mushroom trip or an LSD trip where the capacities you have to make sense of the different inputs going on in your body get kind of just washed away in this powerful wave and you're not able to communicate things in a way that you normally would. And it's definitely, it's, it's not, I'm not saying that they're the same experience or, or they're the same in any way. I have noticed uh, an association between some of the languages, some of the language people use to describe a psychedelic experience and some of the language that's in the movie about sensory control and, and, and speaking and, and experiencing things in ways that may be in a similar vein to like a temporary psychedelic experience. So I was curious if anyone in that community reached out to you and was like, hey, this kind of sounds like maybe something similar is going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely touch points where those things are, th- there are similarities in the things people describe completely. I agree. And, you know, I guess, you know, the, you know long ago, my psychedelic experiences would be something that, w- that I think probably helped me make the film in the sense that you would, yeah. you, you, know, you know, what it looks like to look at the ceiling and feel like it rippling and vibrating or, you know, yeah. those kinds of experiences. Um there's a great book called Autism and the Edges of the Unknown World, I think it's called, by uh, this British academic. And she writes about that, about the connection between psychedelic experiences and, and autistic experiences. It's called Autism and the, the Unknown World. I've got it on the shelf over there. Uh, I, can, I can always look it up too and put yeah. it in the, the description. Autism and the Edges of the Known World. Yeah. I think that my my previous psychedelic experiences and also meditation was running in, you know, running in the background and, and allowed me to connect more deeply to what people were describing and experiencing on film because such a strong part of of meditation or psychedelic experiences is kind of tapping into one sense and, and some parts are super overwhelming and, and some parts are blissful, uh, disturbing. You kind of go on this, this journey and there may be something there where the future of psychedelics and the future of autism treatment can help each other out and combine mm-hmm. that that'll be an interesting thing to see going mm-hmm. forward you know uh, yeah i mean I, I guess there are there are lots of ways in which our kind of waking neurotypical state kind of grounds or filters experiences which are are then are, are kind of yeah they're like blown they're to removed, pieces removed in in various neurological conditions and in 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 psychedelic experiences yeah i don't know about treatments i guess there's a kind of ethical <laughs> interesting yeah. ethical time yeah there. yeah absolutely is there a favorite scene that you have that you didn't include in the film maybe something for just for time or or maybe it didn't fit with the narrative that you portrayed in the final version but on its own was a super powerful scene is there is there anything that comes to mind that you didn't include that was still in your mind a, a moving scene i've been trying done some work kind of with a group of 
student postgraduate editors to explore like a non-verbal version of the film, one that's completely kind of non-verbal and just actually musical using the score. You know, there's a lot of material that we we shot that can be used in that way. I mean, I guess my sort of the, the biggest sort of section that we didn't include was was the the, the, the sort of sixth character, the sixth, per- sixth person that we filmed with, which is a young lad called um, Curry in, in Glasgow, who was in a young uh, non-verbally autistic boy in a play of, in a theatrical version of the book. And that sequence was, that was, Great. And I was kind of, to begin with, sort of thinking about, well, is that there's a really interesting thing that happens there between someone being, you know, interpreting the book within the film. In the end, we kind of lost it because it felt like it sort of, it kind of, you couldn't have these two organizing concepts for the film. You know, you start to get confused about, well, was the book a book or is it a play or is it? So we had to lose a lot of that material, which was a great regret. And I'd kind of love to still try and do something with it. Yeah, so so it was going to be working on some sort of version that would have no words at all, kind of just following following them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still sort of that's still you know we've cut, probably cut about half of it. Whether it'll ever kind of surface, I don't know. But uh, it's an exciting experiment. I mean, one of the yeah. things I think I realized in cutting that was actually the the words do give us where there are words these little nudges from the parents or or and also from the book itself obviously you know they're pretty important in shaping the way we look at those very um, immersive visual sequences you know and actually once you lose them I think the whole thing loses something something that I wasn't expecting when I was watching the film is is how captivating the the letterboard scenes would be because if you told me that a big portion of the film was going to be someone spelling out what it, what they wanted to say on a letter board. I would be like, I don't want to wait that long to, to hear what someone's going to say. And then for those scenes, I was on the edge of my seat, like waiting to w- waiting to see what Ben was going to say, what other people were going to say in the film using the letter board. And I guess for, for you, what, was there anything interesting you came away with from the letterboard experience and seeing how they used it, anything that, that stands out from being alongside them while they're spelling things out? I mean, I think it is a really compelling process. And, and I, one dilemma in the film was, you know, do we put that up front or is it, you know, actually it doesn't kind of happen until about an hour into the film, which I think means that when it does happen, it's like, whoa, hold on a minute, what's, yeah. what's happening there? And you're, and we had this sort of graphic technique, which David Sharp, the editor, came up with where you just put the letters out in a long line and then they resolve so that you really only get what's being said at the end. Or maybe you're working it out as you're watching it. It's a really extraordinary thing to witness. And, you know, it's something that's been, there's been a lot of skepticism around because in the 1990s, you know, there's this technique called facilitated communication that became very big um, where people's arms were supported as they pointed to a letterboard. And, and that, you know, under under kind of test conditions, you know, not, not that test conditions are mm-hmm. necessarily great for aut- non-speaking autistic people, mm-hmm. a lot of those communications were seen to be come from the, the um, facilitator rather than from the person themselves. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the film, uh, you know, Naki himself kind of uses, you know, doesn't use that method. Nobody really uses that method in the film. And it's, it was very clear to me, you know, when you see Naki type on his own on a, on a computer or pointed to a letterboard, the book clearly is, or he's clearly capable of writing the book. 
Um, and the same with with Ben. You know, we we tried to leave those sequences quite long, so that mm. you know it didn't feel like we were just kind of cutting around them in order to kind of make sense of them. So you get the mistakes people are making. You kind of see what the amount of concentration it takes to to do that. And I'm always struck by you know like the the sometimes some of the complexity of the language you know that people are using the word paradigm or you know. <laughs> And you can see the building blocks are there for quicker conversations because for for people who haven't seen the film, when we're talking about a letter board, it's literally a a cutout board with letters. There's no electronics or anything like that transferring to a screen. They use electronics in the film to do other things, but you you could see how if that technology became better and you were able to pass something like that, that you could carry around with you to non-speaking autistic people, like it even had words or phrases or common sentences and, and just allowed you to put things together much more quickly that you could have a normal pace and a, like a neurotypically paced conversation, even though you weren't able to speak. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there are a huge range of other kind of devices, you know, it's a mm-hmm. symbol use of symbols jim largely uses this symbol system to give the little the, the little boy who's in the film to, as a, to communicate ben prefers the that letterboard that you can kind of stick the pencil through the hole partly because of the physicality of it i think there's a moment in the film where emma uses an ipad that that types out to a screen cory who i was just talking about uses an ipad and then uses it you, you know switches it to voice mode so he'll type a sentence mm-hmm. and then press the voice and that enables a really a really kind of good interchange in conversation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really exciting. I think, you know, it's um, the, 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 the possibilities of those, those things. Was it a challenge for you to figure out what speaking moments to put in the film? Because even though the people are technically non-speaking, they are saying some words and mm. some sounds, but the, the film makes clear that just because a non-speaking autistic person says something that's not always intentional. Sometimes it's, it's a, a word or a noise that doesn't have something to do with the, what they're trying to communicate. So how did you navigate that? If, you know, maybe you thought something was intentional or it wasn't, or maybe it was an intentional thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's obviously the speech of parents and families in, in the film. And I tried to kind of keep that fairly minimal. You know, I think often films about non-speaking autistic, People are all are told entirely through the through the parents' experience, and the yeah. parents' experience has a particular shape. You know, they had a child; they discovered the child was autistic. That made them have to change their perceptions. They, you know, it's full of challenges, and that's not the, obviously the autistic person's story, which is a really different thing. You know, I'm born here, I am kind of thing. Instead. So, so I've tried to sort of minimize that, but I, you know, there is a, there is they're absolutely a part of everyone's life, and they are they, so they are there and they are important there. In terms of the the sort of speech used by autistic people in the film, I mean, I, tr- I think the first time we really come across that, I kind of use this bit from Naoki in the book where he talks about, you know, sometimes kind of words tumbling out that might be associations or memories or something that he'll he'll he's almost got stuck on as a as a phrase, which sometimes is frustrating. I think you know, back to that body as a faulty robot thing, but sometimes also can be a form of communication itself, you know? So he talks about it as, as, as like, a, you know, exchanging a favorite phrase with someone as being like a game of catch. And there's a bit in the film where Joss uses, uh, he, he goes, is it a red Hoover? And, and the kind of response 
he's kind of grown to like from that is that no, it's a black hoover. Um, and to which he'll say, is it a black hoover? And the person goes, no, it's a red hoover. And then, and then this black hoover, red hoover. And, and it's got this amazing kind of rhythm to it. It, it actually refers to a memory of a, a swimming pool cleaner that he saw on a holiday once when he was, I think, five or six years old or, or younger, even a red thing that collect, collected leaves off a, off a swimming pool. So it's like it, it's something that's a, a past memory, but it's kind of got locked into language in some, in a completely different functional way. Yeah, I tried to just use that in ways that people would start to think about and understand those forms of communication, which are still communication, they're not necessarily intentional. The memory part of the film, especially with Joss, that, that was a fascinating aspect where memories are usually thought of as these linear experiences where you can call upon them when you want to. But when you when you do call upon them, it's clear that this is something that got your attention 10 years ago or, or five years ago. And, and the length of time that has passed between you and the experience is built into the memory, whereas mm-hmm. for some for someone in the film and one of uh, who may be a, a non-speaking autistic person, something that they may experience is that a memory. It's not clear that the impact of a memory is tied to how long ago it happened. They can experience something just as strongly or feel something just as strongly that happened ten years ago as ten minutes ago, and and that sensation and the, the sensory experiences tied to the memory can fly right back into the the present and it's not this clear linear path yeah that's right and i think it brings the sort of emotional force of the original memory with it a lot of us have that through with smell i think i think there's times when you can smell something and it will immediately recall something that might be a yes. long time ago and maybe less so with say language or um seeing a pattern you know that might not necessarily trigger in but i think i mean it's interesting i think all of these states are like fundamental human states they're not they're not confined to autistic people Mm -hmm. which is this thing donna donna williams a writer says the autistic writer says you know we all visit these states it's just that the difference of being autistic is you live there and that's a very different experience you know from occasional. Yeah, we can visit it temporarily. I, I've had some experiences like that with smell where I've been walking around and I smell a perfume from some, maybe it's a, a same perfume of someone I dated five years ago. And I, I'll smell that and all these memories will come flooding back. Or, or sometimes with music, I'll be walking across the, the Brooklyn Bridge listening to music and then I hear a song where, you know, I, I was, I, I heard it the first time down at, at University of Richmond where I went to school in Virginia and I'll kind of be transported back to walking outside the <laughs> library because for whatever reason, that memory is tied the most strongly to that mm-hmm. song I listened to. So I, I've definitely had experiences like that where I'm kind of temporarily transported back to another memory like it just happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think def- definitely it's a it's common to all of us. Maybe it's th- about the level of intensity of it and the regularity of it. You know, is there a part of the film that you think personally changed you the most? Where where you 
look back to that specific five minutes and you think this is affecting the way that I am walking through the world, maybe more so than other parts of the film. Because for me, I, I felt like the the civil rights scene where Ben says they've denied mm-hmm. us our civil rights, mm-hmm. that was along with the other parts of the film that were conveying the, the sensory aspects of what people, what, what uh, the five people are going through, this was kind of like a meta realization where I can express my civil rights because we live in a world that expects me to express them in a neurotypical fashion where, where I, where I say them out loud and I say when something's wrong or I say when something's right. And that was kind of like, you can't even, if you're being denied them, how are you even supposed to, to say that? Is there any, is there any. Film? Yeah, I think that, that actually that same moment, you know, I think, I think that moment is the same for me. I think partly because I think at that moment you are really aware of how you have judged people in the past and how you have um, sort of disregarded, you know, interpreted lack of speech as, as lack of, lack of thought. And, you know, I think it's one, it's a moment that sort of turns, turns the tables on the audience really and, and makes you really question the way that you've, you've looked at people. When we first cut that moment, we, we cut away from Ben doing the letterboard to images of other kind of civil rights struggles for equality and, you know, to try and link the, the quest for autistic rights to those other struggles. And in the end, we kind of cut all of that because we just felt it's like you need to just sort of be there and you, you'll make those associations anyway. I think that was one of the kind of learning the lessons of the film really was, was how to kind of just step back a bit and let, let an audience make the links rather than push them on them. Yeah, I, I was tearing up a little bit on that scene. And then the teacher also, when it panned back to her, it looked like she was also yeah, she, getting yeah, emotional. She, and it, it was a very powerful scene because I, I, it made me think about all the times in my life where I thought I wasn't being treated well and maybe someone was doing something to me that, you know, they, they didn't, have my consent for and I like express like, Hey, you can't do this. Like this is wrong. Or, or I want you to stop this right now. Or maybe I'm enjoying this. Like I, mm-hmm. I want to experience this again. And you're not even, uh, the, the way, the way the world is set up, I can do that very easily. And mm-hmm. it, there's not that path right now for non-speaking autistic people where they can clearly communicate when their rights are being violated mm-hmm. in a situation right then and there like to and for the other person to be able to understand what they're saying yeah and i think i mean historically non-speaking autistic people have on the whole been kind of banished you know Mm -hmm. made made to live quite invisible lives in institutions uh and and so on and it's kind of like it is really heartening that people like ben and emma and there's a whole movement now to make sure that or that's, that's trying to make sure that that voice is, is heard in kind of the way society responds to non-speaking autistics. You know, I really hope the film draws people into that and, and makes people listen to that movement more. What was your experience like filming down in Sierra Leone? Because that, that was an aspect that was so clearly different from the other parts of the film. 
the way that people thought about autism down there and neurological differences in general, like people talking about throwing uh, autistic children in rivers or just like, you know, dumping them because there's some sort of like demonic thing going on or something like that. Like what, what was it like to, to be in that sort of environment and film the experiences going down, down in uh, Sierra Leone? Yeah, I mean, I always thought of that sequence as being where the film kind of broadens out to think not just about the autistic individual, but about the society that they're they're in. And so that sequence also does contain these kind of references to the Nazi T4 program, which killed autistic kids, or to the ways kids, autistic people have been institutionalized or or, um, or, or, or the whole idea of kind of euthanasia. You know, I don't think it's a, it's not a, specifically African issue it's a yeah. issue across a lot of societies but I think what I was just really struck by was Mary Justina's mum's mm-hmm. work Mary's work and how one individual or a family could have a really great impact you know I mean they, they're doing these kind of workshops in mainly rural communities where there's very strongly held beliefs about disabled people being some way the progeny of the devil um, or particularly autistic people with the consequence that that there's a strong social pressure to abandon autistic children but also you know really struck by the 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 families and the mothers of those kids absolutely being the point of resistance to that you know they're they're the ones that are already kind of resisting that community pressure Mary's support for that and her kind of interventions in that, you know, I think have saved a lot of lives and uh, setting up the kind of school that she's done, which was the first school for autistic young people in Freetown in Sierra Leone, you know, I think has had a big impact on government policy, on the way people think about autism. So it's, it's uh, hopefully it's, it's as well as being like shocking at times in that sequence. And I think we kind of cut out actually a lot of the more shocking material that we shot it's a kind of hopeful, I think it's a hopeful sequence. It gives you a, a good perspective on before you even try to address the problem of improving the quality of life for people who are non-speaking autistic, you have to make people understand and help them understand what the problem actually is. And if someone has a skewed version in their head of what is actually going on and what's the source of it and there's you know it's a supernatural thing or it's a something just like and like you said it's not it's not a an african thing specifically we have a history in the united states of you know witch hunting people that are probably a lot of them were mentally there was a a sort of mental disorder non-neurotypical thing going on and so it gives a really clear picture of you know, how scary it can be if people's understanding of something mm-hmm. isn't there, it's incorrect, or, or it's severely skewed in some manner. Yeah, I mean, in Britain, it was like the big watershed was about, I think it's 1915, was the Mental Deficiency Act, which kind of labeled uh, a whole set of conditions, which, which were then kind of consequent on people being removed to, to long-stay hospitals, which were where there was appalling treatment. And you know that, but the, the conditions range from a, there was one which was like the moral de- defective. You know, so a lot of young women who'd had kids out of wedlock ended up in these long in long stay hospitals as well. So it's just a, a huge kind of uh, yeah, a pretty terrible history, which hopefully we won't 
ever return to. So to take a step back before we end off, how has the process of making this film changed the way that you view your your purpose in life or, or maybe the, the the meaning of life in general, which is, you know, impossible to answer, but I feel like everything, everything that I do, whether it's a, a podcast or a conversation or experience that adds to how I walk through life a little bit, a tiny percentage, which is what I enjoy about podcasting so much. I do feel like I change in some small way in line with some of the messages that come from the people I speak to. For you being the filmmaker, what do you think that thing is that may have changed inside you, if any, that kind of affects the way that you look at why we're all here? Every film, I think, you know, because I guess making a feature doc is a long process, like two, three years. I think this was three years or so from beginning to to end. Well, and now it's like five years because it's sort of 18 months since we finished the film and we're just releasing it in the UK now. Every one of them is its own its own kind of experience from the making side, you know, where you learn, you immerse yourself in in a, a kind of world with a set of people and and around a set of kind of themes and questions. I guess for this film, I mean, often I get to the end of the film and I kind of then want to do something very different after it, as I was saying at the beginning. But I think actually with this film, interestingly, there's a whole set of things which I would love to continue to pursue. And, uh, you know, I sort of feel that that, you know, particularly the, the writing of non-speaking autistic people really changes the way I look at the world. You know, I think I look at it much more as I, I'm much more aware of my own very, that your own take on the world is a very particular one. You know, it's very, it's particular in a sensory way. We probably, none of us have the same, precisely the same sensory experience. Everyone's idea of what a particular color is, is like, is probably marginally different. You know, that we all see the world in slightly different ways. And that makes you think a lot about the judgments you make about other people, the ways you communicate with them or the ways you think they're communicating with you. I think that's probably the biggest way it's affected me. Yeah, that, that's definitely been a huge part of my journey as well. Going through life is just getting my worldview blown to pieces and then collecting it and looking at the world and hopefully a, a little bit of a better way and a more accurate lens and realizing how much of my own experience does not necessarily carry over to how other people see things. And it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people check out the film? What's the best spot for people to watch The Reason I Jump? As of yesterday, the film is on Netflix. So that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Really? It's also available wow. as a Blu-ray when the Blu-ray has the full 360 Atmos mix. So if you've got kind of means of playing that at home, that's a good way to experience the film. And uh, as a DVD, uh, both available from Kino Lorba. In the UK on Friday, it's released in cinemas and it's in the about 60 cinemas around the UK. Reasonijump.film is the, is the website. If you want kind of more mm -hmm. background material on the film, there's another website which will be there for, for longer and it's more international called thereisonijumpfilm.com. 
Thank you for listening to the AAK podcast. To keep up with all things AAK, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at AAK Cares. For any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach out to me through my email, which is linked in the podcast description. We appreciate you tuning in. Until next time.